The following is from the April 17, 2021 conference, End U.S. Support for Israeli Apartheid. All conference information is available at www.israelapartheidcon.org. And now we're going to move, I guess, sort of from Washington to New York uh, with Walt, I mean, sorry, with Ian Williams, as we kind of discussed U.S. policy and the Israel lobby at the U.N., uh, Ian has been on the UN beat for a very long time for us here at the Washington Report. Uh, he's our UN columnist, and he's also the president of the Foreign Press Association and the author of a few books. Sorry, as the police go by, uh, including this book right here, Untold, The Real Story of the United Nations in Peace and War, available from our bookstore. Today, he'll be discussing bipartisan support for Israel at the UN under both Democratic and Republican administrations and offer some insights into perhaps how this will change or continue under the Biden administration. So with that, uh, Ian, we're very excited to have you and look forward to your remarks. Well, change, inshallah, as they say in that part of the world. Um, There's several things. I'm really glad I didn't do a prepared speech because I don't want to repeat what other people have done here. And um, there's a lot of stuff that uh, feeds in to what we have to say about the UN. And even as we were speaking, uh, one of the issues that came up was the influence of the lobby on, it's not just on the Middle East, it's the entire US foreign policy has been put in question by this slavish support for Israel. You can't support Israel in this sense of uh, slavish support and support the United Nations Charter. So in effect, support of Israel involves repudiating the 1945 UN Charter that FDR and the US fought so hard for. Um, It means challenging the whole role of international law, of, of, of humanitarian order. There's no way that the US can go to the Serbs and say, you can't treat Kosovars like that. Well, they can do, but they can't do it with a straight face when they're countenancing what's happening in the occupied territories. Uh, you can't go to Syria and say, you can't blow up people like that. It's, you know, it, it's, it's against humanitarian law, but it's okay for our allies to use white phosphorus. You can't say it's okay for um, South, Saudi Arabia to put journalists through meat grinders and then turn around and say, but look what those Iranians are doing. It detracts from the whole point of a principled foreign policy. And each time this comes up, US foreign policy towards Turkey, is it based on whether Erdogan is a good guy or a bad guy at any given moment? No, it's based upon whether Erdogan and the Turks are sympathetic to Israel or not. Right down the line, this comes up. And we've had several egregious examples recently uh, in particular over Kosovo. Now, it's been, I supported independence for Kosovo in the columns of the Washington Report. I actually pointed out that the apartheid declaration applied to what the, how the Serbs treated the Kosovars. It was, it was quite explicit. So we support them, but then we get this deal between Serbia and Kosovo in return for them both accepting Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. So it's not due on the inherent merits of whether Kosovo deserves to be independent or not, or whether Serbia should be forced to make peace uh, with some American pressure. It's what Israel wants, get it. Western Sahara, another issue which we've dealt with in the columns of the Washington Report for many years. 
I don't know what a legal effect. I think that Trump's declaration, I, I don't think a tweet by a deranged exiting president really counts as uh, remaking foreign policy or international law. But his recognition, so-called, that Morocco is uh, is the titular owner of Western Sahara has no validity in international law. I don't think the State Department echoed it. I don't think they've declared on it. And one of the tests for um, Biden's independence will be whether he says, no, that's not true. Uh, the, the, the occupied the, that's an occupied territory by UN declarations and resolutions that we the US have supported Western Sahara is occupied but because Morocco has toadied up to the uh, toadied up to Israel and we come back to the key point in our international politics from the US is that the road to Washington goes through Israel for almost every country how they vote at the UN in regards to Israel means that they think that they will get a sympathetic hearing and the Israel lobby behind them. So it has completely deleterious effects. Morocco, because it's, uh, it's, it's been a quasi, uh, it's, it's, let's say it's, it's opposed Israeli policies on paper and supported them, in fact, for many decades now. And it's done so because that's the way it gets support in Washington. Turkey for many years supported Israel because that's the way it got support in Washington. Now Turkey doesn't feel it needs support from Washington because it can get weapons from Russia and it's giving the finger to everybody concerned on this. But it's uh, it, it, it's a not a good way to think out a joined up foreign policy. And we come to South Africa, a key point. Um, I have to confess, I started writing a book on the Israel lobby many years ago, which I wish... I'd completed, things happened, but I did a lot of research for it. And one of the things that intrigued me was how did the Congressional Black Caucus allow that Israel could be the major conduit for um, weapons into South Africa and for diamonds out of South Africa. So while we're calling for a boycott of South Africa, we're keeping the tap open in Israel. And I asked this question to Rabbi Arthur Herzberg at NYU just before. I said, how did you manage to keep the Congressional Black Caucus in hand? Why weren't they calling for a boycott of Israel as part of the boycott of South Africa? And he looked at me and he was very astute. He said, you know, you're very clever. I negotiated the treaty with the Congressional Black Caucus. And the deal was that we would support them on all the domestic issues as long as they didn't raise the question of Israeli ties to apartheid. And that deal held. That deal held. It far tighter than the NATO treaty. It is held until very recently. So, you know, our support, all ethics out the window, because it's expedient for one country. And it comes over and over again in the case of the United Nations. And let's remember about the United Nations. Uh, the U.S. set up the United Nations. It was FDR's creation. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights was written by his wife, pretty much. Well, she got a lot of support. I think her work's been overblown on it. Um, but Resolution 181 of the UN in 1947, which marked the foundation of the State of Israel, it's the United, it, it, it's the, um, basically, it's the legitimization. This is, not, not, not Moses tablets coming down from Mount Sinai, but the resolution 181 
is the title deed of the Zionists to Israel. There's no, no other document. And with the Balfour Declaration, one eccentric civil servant writing a memo to try and get support during World War I does not constitute a legitimate international transfer of, uh, you know, uh, I think it was Monty Python, you know, watery, watery bins waving swords from underwater is not a legitimate instrument of transfer of power. So the Balfour Declaration isn't. 181 is. And by the way, we tend to forget that Stalin and the Soviet Union were eager proponents of the foundation of Israel. But even then, I mean, I know from my researchers at the UN, the Jewish Telegraph Agency was acting as a de facto pre-Israel embassy. They lobbied members. All the members of the United Nations were getting lobbied to support that resolution intensely. Huge pressure. We know they put pressure on Truman as well. Um, but there's that been war that that war of attrition has carried on since then. And I, I'd sort of race forward because the one thing that um, the famous resolution, which is spoken with such horror and disdain, is resolu- the resolution in 1975, which declared Zionism a form of racism and racial discrimination. It was finally repealed in December 16th, 1991, and I was in the General Assembly when it happened. And let's remember the circumstances. We're talking expediency here. This was like one of those town councils in the Midwest that passes a resolution saying that from now on, pi is equal to three. Because it was quite clear to all of the delegates that Zionism was a form of racism and racial discrimination. But not many delegates were going to get up to a UN, a US that had just pulverized Iraq and say so. I can tell you, George W. Bush wanted this resolution. Why? It was appeasement for the fact he had the temerity to stand up. He and Bob Dole had had the temerity to stand up against Israel on the for, on, on the question of the uh, loan guarantees. He'd actually held them down on that one. He'd faced them off. But then he met such a, a storm of uh, assaults from the lobby. He thought he'd buy them off with this. It didn't work. They still hated him. They took it and ran. And it was repealed. I remember the circumstances. The president of the General Assembly was actually the Saudi ambassador. And he took a walk. It's what they call the toilet vote in the UN, in, in the, UN the restroom vote. He went out and made sure that somebody else stood in his place because he wasn't going to be presiding over this vote. Israel afterwards got itself invited to join the West European and other group under heavy US pressure. This meant it was a regional group. It's in rotation for the Security Council. Unfortunately for Israel, the West European and other group actually has real elections. It has people standing against each other instead of going on a rotor system. So I have to say that whatever they do, Israel is very, very unlikely to get elected because it goes to the general body of the UN, uh, because it's, if it's a contested election. Uh, no, the, these are the various items that come in. So what's the disposition that the UN now? Israel spent several years at that particular time of 1990s. Likud was, uh, was still smarting and being even more stupid than now. Uh, and basically it joined everybody in dissing the United, the United Nations. And you have to remember that this anti-UN stuff with the black helicopters 
it was something that was, you know, it, it's automatic. But American isolationists opposed the UN. One of the reasons that this came was the it was the Israel lobby that decided to start cutting back on dues to the United Nations, cutting back on an international treaty obligation to punish them for supporting the Palestinian rights. And once that uh, once that gap in the dike was opened, the flood came through, and we got to the position where. You know, the UN was on the def- was on the verge of being defunded by the United States, where UNRWA was defunded, where UNESCO was defunded. This is all a consequence of the Israel lobby interfering to get its own way on particular issues. You know, you you think pulling down the whole apparatus of um, international law because UNESCO has accepted the state of Palestine uh, as accepted by the majority of members. Is a bit much, but then you know we're talking about people who have a hero as Samson who pulled the temple down on top of everybody, regardless of of who they were and when they were. So I suppose it's the same thing with them. But the temple is still there, and they're still negotiating there. And now they are actually very active in there. They've they've always been active, and we've talked about the the lobby and uh, Walter Hickson and others were discussing the means of it. It's it's a sort of um, it's not a coherent, in lockstep body. It's an ecological subsystem of lobbies. Each of these lobbies is, think of the NRA. The NRA that has two purposes in life. One is to provide its staff and its director with a very affluent lifestyle. And the second is to get what it wants on the Second Amendment. A lot of these lobbies are the same. They are competing. So they're competing for the votes of people who hate the United Nations. They're competing with, for votes of the, of, of the ones who support Israel tooth and nail and will go to whatever lengths to do so. And they're there all of the time. They take their donors to the United Nations. They introduce them to the Secretary General. They introduce them to the ambassador of major powers because that's what the donors want. The donors don't just do it because they're nice people. They do it because they get pride in their community. They get medals. They get awards. They get banquets. They get told, you know, the American Jewish Committee will give them a dinner. Uh, the Conference of Presidents of Major Organizations will give them an award. And they get taken to the high places of the world and shown it by, uh, by, by the lobbyists. It's a very successful operation. And they go to the different countries they go and bang on the doors of all the hovering nations and say, look, we're really supporting you. And these countries, often weak, fragile, will look and think, wow, major support from the US. These people control Congress. Of course we've got to. It's almost as though they've operationalized the um, protocols of Zion. They've persuaded these people that the protocols of Zion apply and that the Israel lobby completely controls the US Congress and the world. And if they want to get ahead, they have to do it. Um, and, and it works over and over. You look at Kosovo. Kosovo got a lot of support from Muslim countries at one point uh, in its independence and from others. Uh, they got support from Malaya, for example, in a big way. They, they and the Bosnians um, all disappeared. You want to be in with the Americans. You have to go and recognize Israel and go to change your embassy. Um, this. This is the pattern. Uh, the more recently, the cleverer Israeli ambassadors have come along. Why did they come to the US? <laughs> well, for a start, 
They're often political rivals. The previous ambassador was someone who was a rival to Netanyahu. By being in New York, you get access to this lobby. You get access to lots and lots of contributions for your own political career back in Israel, which is what they did. And you do this by taking them to see the Secretary General. You take them to see the British ambassador. You take them to see the French ambassador. You take them all along to all of these places. And you get a double butt plus because they push. You're showing the British and the French that if you, if, if, if you, tr- if you truckle with us, you're in trouble because we've got this huge influential sector of American society that's going to weigh against you. And they all want to be on the side of the winners in, in Washington. They're all being nice. Uh, we mentioned Boris Johnson before. Boris Johnson has disappeared up his own fundament, uh, ripping up years uh, of international law as expressed by Britain. And incidentally, uh, Tony Blair began the process. We often forget Margaret Thatcher stood for international law in most cases. She actually voted along with the others on all the Palestinian resolutions against the United States, against dear Ronald. She voted against it because that was the international law. It took Tony Blair under the influence of Washington to to go differently, uh, which is where it's going now. So all these things have consequences. And one of the things that we need to do is to look on how to do it. And it's, it's, it's a war of attrition on a thousand fronts all the way along. Um, it's minor stuff. Um, it, it's not minor stuff. Um, you really have to look for it. I recently raised a, a fuss because some of you saw in the newspapers that the oldest basket in the world found in Israel. It wasn't. It was found in the occupied territories. Why should I raise that? Where's the Palestinian lobby? Where's what the Palestinian mission do? Why aren't they saying, hey, that's looting. It's only a basket, but it's our basket. It's a Palestinian basket. You can't claim it as Israeli. It's a war crime to steal cultural practices like this. There's not enough people watching this. The Israelis, on the other hand, the first dereliction and you will get a host of letters. Your editors will get a host of letters. In 1983, I did a tour of the West Bank and the occupied territories. I wrote an article about it for the Guardian, which was rather, um, it, it was a bit far out at the time. And the editor was a bit dubious about taking it. And then the letters started coming in. And it just so happened, I knew the guy who did this. He was a Jewish friend of mine, uh, you know, in a personal friend, not a political friend by any means. And he coordinated the response. All of his list got a postcard saying, complain to the Guardian about the anti-Semitism in this article. So they all duly put in the letters complaining about anti-Semitism. But they didn't know what they were complaining about. One of them said that because I said the mosquitoes in Jerusalem, I was clearly anti-Semitic. He'd been told you have to make a complaint. And he was looking at it. Well, you know, mosquitoes? Jerusalem? <laughs> what type of rabid Nazi is this guy? I mean, this this is what they were reduced to. But they were doing it. And editors don't like getting complaints. They don't emails now, of course. <laughs> None of this postcard and licking a stamp and putting it on. They, they continually on the lookout. And that is what the Palestinians are lacking. They want a host of people because we take it for granted. We think that's silly. You know, why would you complain about something? Why would you complain about a basket in the West Bank? Well, you complain because every time that goes in, it's this incremental war of attrition depriving the Palestinian claim of legitimacy. And it's that level that goes on at the UN as well. 
uh, and it's underfunded, understaffed, and it's constrained because Abbas wants the everyone to make nice to the Americans and not to upset the Israelis too much. But you really need an aggressive campaign. And I'm afraid at the UN at the moment, it's far worse because the Palestinians support us for many years. I think uh, I think Walter Hickson and others refer to this. The worst enemies of the Palestinians were their best friends. You really do not want or didn't want at the time Syria and Iraq and Nicaragua under Maduro and uh, in Venezuela under Maduro. You really didn't want some of the worst regimes in the country standing up and shouting about Palestinian rights because they weren't concerned about rights, anybody's rights, as we know. I mean, what they know about human rights could be written on the thin edge of a postage stamp. And everybody else knew that. So it delegitimized it. Uh, and what we have to do at the United Nations is to work and get you know, more acceptable, legitimate countries. We need to get the Europeans and the Scandinavians and South Africa we've got outside. Other countries with some um, credibility on these issues. But unfortunately, they've gone by the wayside and the Israelis have been working on them as well. Israel has been toting up to India. It's, it's been selling weapons to China. <laughs> it's, it's, it's using its state influence all the way. So it, it's, um, then it comes to the question, why is the UN important? I noticed one of the questions that was asked there. What's the effect of the International Criminal Court? Well, the Israelis are very concerned about it. As it is at the moment, they know that every time one of their officials gets on a plane, they stand the risk of arrest when they get off at the other side under universal jurisdiction. If arrest warrant goes out under the ICC, they go there. It's already happened. Israeli officials have landed in London and somebody tipped off. The, the British police came and tipped them off. If they get off the plane, there's an arrest warrant for them. So, you know, it's a small incremental thing, but I do think it's one of the sort of unsung triumphs of the United Nations that Israeli bureaucrats and military officers have to consult their lawyers and their travel agents before they go anywhere. This is a good thing. And if the type of harassment and delegitimization of what they're doing that has effect, the same way it did with South Africa. Uh, and I also have to say to um, Dugard, we did complain, campaign about South Africa. I was expelled from university over apartheid in South Africa. So I have form on this one. And, um, you know, there are quite a lot of us paid a price for supporting South Africa. And some of us came into the support for the Palestinians when we saw the Israeli support for South Africa as well, which uh, delegitimized our original sort of social democrat uh, pro-Zionist inclinations. Um, so we were, uh, anyway, it was there, we fought against it, uh, and they're still fighting against it. But then you look at the examples. Um, I think that Jeremy Corbyn's big fault not that he was anti-Semitic, but that once he'd accepted the legitimacy of these accusations against some of his colleagues, he'd opened the dike. The torrent came rushing through. And Jeremy Corbyn's a long-standing acquaintance of mine. He hasn't got an anti-Semitic bone in his body. And that's the weapon they used. The accusation is terrifying. It's an internal accusation. It's like in 1984, where not believing in Big Brother sufficiently makes you feel guilty because you're not along with everybody else. And this is, this is the real weapon of anti-Semitism. 
at the United Nations and on an individual level. Well-meaning thinking, well-thinking, well-meaning people are horrified at being thought anti-Semitic. You know, after, after the Holocaust, we have every right to be horrified at the thought of the accusation. But on the other hand, we have every right to turn around and rebut and refute those accusations when they clearly make our nonsense. And when Ken Livingston, the former mayor of London, was accused of anti-Semitism, Corbyn and his friends threw him under the bus. That meant that they were next up. The bus was coming back for them immediately afterwards, and it came back for them. So part of it is the idea of standing up, like our colleagues earlier today, having the courage to stand up and hold to your principles and getting enough people to do it. There is safety in numbers. If you can get more people to do it, if more editors actually defied the lobby and did it, if they could actually get into their clubs and cabal together and say, look, you know, this report, we should put it out. Uh, Netanyahu is a thug. We should say so and get everybody else to say so as well. Or if I say it, will you say it? But those networks have to be built. It's difficult. And part of this conference is an attempt to point the ways to that exercise and how to, um, how, how to work on an international level. Uh, we should be lobbying delegations at the UN. We should be lobbying the Germans. We should be lobbying the Dutch. We should be lobbying the Scandinavians, all the ones who are wobbly. We should certainly be lobbying Canada. We should certainly be lobbying Australia because they got a free pass. They have both regressed in a shocking way under US influence. Um, Canada's lost its Security Council seat. Most Canadians don't know that Canada lost its Security Council seat for the last two attempts it tried to because it had stopped supporting Palestine and was supporting Israeli resolutions. And, you know, the delegates out there, they're marking their card. This is a secret ballot. They couldn't hit back at the US. They couldn't back out at Israel, but they could hit back at Canada, and they did. And Australia has been getting the same treatment over the years. The UK is getting the same treatment for this and Iraq, of course. It's uh, it lost several important positions that used to take for granted <clears throat> on the International Criminal Court and others. Um, but we have to encourage them. You have to build that apparatus. You have to get out there. And individuals have to take action, not just on baskets in the West Bank, but on um, <laughs> on basket cases in various capitals around the world. We should go for them and uh, and remind them. You know, there are embassies here, and they do listen to what people say. If we go lobbying to the British embassy and say, hey, you know, we've seen you. If you protest outside the British embassy, if you ever pick it, it has an effect. If you pick it outside the German embassy and say, You're, you are an accomplice in war crimes by covering for Israel, that hits them home. And the German press might even cover it, even though they've got their own problems. But we can't let them get away with all of this. Um, United Nations is a flawed instrument. But it is the only instrument we've got. And as I often say, and I think I said in the book, um, it's like democracy. Uh, it's the worst possible, most inefficient thing in the world. But it's the only one we've got. And we have to work with it. And it's something that the Palestinians have been using in a very serious way. They have been, um, uh, it was actually Yasser Arafat's nephew, um, Nasser al-Kidwa who started the long litigational road against Israel, which they're terrified of. 
that their reaction to BDS is part of that. He pioneered resolution after resolution, which stitched up Israel legally. And our previous speakers are much better on this, but those whole series of resolutions, which were framed to say what Israel is doing, how it contravenes international law, how it contravenes international conventions, why support of Israel is contravention and a form of accomplice, accomplice and conspiracy with Israel to defy international law. He's done that, but it's up the rest of us. It's up to the rest of us now to implement it because you have a law that's not implemented. You may as well not have it. In fact, it brings the law into disrepute as well. Uh, just as U.S. support for Israel, unconditional support, has continually degraded the stature of the United of the United Nations and international law. Now, Biden, he has shown several signs that he's walked back. There's fund, some funding restored for UNRWA. There's some of the other more outrageous resolutions which have been uh, of executive decisions have been walked back. Uh, what does he need to do? He needs to say very firmly that by international law and previous US decisions, the settlements are illegal and Israeli activities there are illegal and in violation of the Geneva Conventions. Let's hear him say it. Then I'm convinced there might be a new era. Up till then, um, it's like a sumo wrestling match and the Israel lobby is bigger than us and is heaving us out the, uh, heaving us out the dojo. So up till then, um, I don't think Joe Biden really cut to be a sumo wrestler, but who knows? He's surprised me with several of his decisions so far. Um, we've got some hope. Um, so happy to entertain question, and I'd love to hear the contributions from our international lawyers and others who have been there and been part of this apparatus inside the United Nations of using its facilities to, high, to, to highlight uh, international law and to highlight crimes against international law. 